Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 174, Warwick's Rubicon. Just very quickly, remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website inspiringly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. Now then, last week was all about Edward making it quite clear to Warwick, if by actions rather than deeds, that he was no longer the chief man of the realm and that it was the king who would rule. Just to make it clear that the French alliance was dead, that alliance that had been so much part of Warwick's plans, and in which so much of his pride was invested, in October 1467 Edward was able to announce the crowning of the Burgundian alliance, with the marriage of his sister Margaret to Duke Charles the Bold, the new Duke of Burgundy. This now followed treaties with Denmark, Castile, Brittany, all of them very obviously designed to surround France with a ring of enemies. There could be no pikestaff ever so plain that Edward had never intended to sign any agreements with Louis, that he'd just let old Warwick run around and build himself up until he, Edward, took a large double-handed sword and cut him off at the knees. In the mother of all huffs, Warwick huffed his way all the way up to the north, to the place where he could puff away as near king as made no difference, to his castle at Middleham in Wensleydale. There was no doubt a lot of wound-licking that went on. He huffed that he would not attend court again as long as Rivers or Scales or Herbert was in attendance too. Now this was dangerous huffing. Warwick stood right on the edge of what was and was not acceptable. He appears, in fact to have realised and to have drawn back from such dangerous huffing. He and his brother, George the Archbishop of York, seem to have been involved in council discussions of state about what to do about the Hanseatic League. We'll come back to that later, but the point is that he does seem to have been down south in London to a degree with the king. 
Also in May 1468, Warwick gritted his teeth and accompanied Edward's daughter, Margaret, on a procession through London to see her off to the continent, riding on the same horse as her, slightly oddly. Now, there's a lazy streak a mile wide in Edward's character, combined with a rather attractive, generous streak. Such as what we saw with the way he treated Somerset, a proclivity towards forgive and forget rather than vengeance, death and mayhem. And in 1468, Edward appeared ready to believe that Warwick and the Nevilles had accepted their new status as one of many, and would accept the king's new family. But it was a difficult time, and rumours were running high. As early as 1467, there was a rumour that Warwick was corresponding with Margaret of Anjou, when a messenger was found and confessed to many things while being tortured with a hot iron held to his feet. Just FYI for torturers... I'm happy to confess anything you like under the same circumstances. Edward asked Warwick to come and reply to these charges, and Warwick angrily refused. Well, with many kings at this point, there'd have been a degree of bucket-head throne going on. Edward, rather calmly, sent the poor bloke with the burnt feet to Warwick, hopefully not making him walk, and when he arrived, Warwick was able to easily disprove the accusations. But Edward had been spending money on a spy network, giving his sheriffs a budget to gather information. As a result, there were arrests in 1468 of Lancastrian lords suspected of scheming. Two lords called Henry Curtney and Thomas Hungerford were both arrested. John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, was arrested. A bunch of servants belonging to the Duke of Norfolk pulled in and a merchant skinner called Richard Stairs was accused of carrying correspondence to Margaret of Anjou. For some reason, it's recorded that our Richard Stairs was, quote, one of the cunningest player of tennis in England. Now, I'm not sure why this was felt important for the writer to mention, unless the writer happened to be a fan, but interesting to note that the game we now call real tennis was popular in England by this stage as well as in France. In Paris, apparently, there were something like 250 courts, which, if true, is an enormous number. In England, Henry IV and Henry V are meant to have played. It's not just Henry VIII who makes the game famous. Should you happen to have a chance to play real tennis, I can inform you that it is a hoot and as mad as a box of cheese. It's just exactly like the kind of game you make up with your mates to take account of the various obstacles in your backyard. But anyway, we are talking of more important things than games, if there are any things more important than games. As it happens, the vast majority of these suspicions and accusations just disappear into the ether. Oxford, for example, was able to clear himself as his father had not been able to, which is ironic, as events will turn out. The exceptions were Courtney and Hungerford, who were subjected to trial with Edward in attendance. They pleaded their innocence. The king's attorney said, Nah, they're definitely guilty. The jurors looked at the king. The king raised an eyebrow and the jurors said, Oh, all right then. And the finest English justice had run its course with the resulting horrors of the whole hanging, drawing and quartering malarkey. The rumour was that Courtney's downfall was due to a chap called Humphrey Stafford. Humphrey Stafford is a good example of the way that kings sought to rule through magnates they could trust, to nullify the magnates and barons that they could not. He's also a good example of how the Wars of the Roses were driven and inflamed by the ceaseless struggle for local dominance by the English nobility. 
We've heard quite a bit about the Kirtneys, traditional earls of Devon, of how their local power struggle against the Bonvilles drove them to desperation and war. As a result, they'd hopped from Yorkist to Lancaster in bed. Edward did not, could not, trust them as far as he could throw them, as his father had found out to his cost. And so he replaced them. And his choice was Humphrey Stafford, a baron with land in Somerset and Dorset, not a country mile from the Devon. In the 1460s, Stafford was given extensive lands from the old Courtney estates, and in 1469 would be made Earl of Devon. In his pursuit of the Courtney lands, the new Earl of Devon pursued their owners as well, of course, in this case, Henry Courtney. The price of land could be expensive, and in this case, the price of land for Courtney was to have various bits removed from his body. In fact, it's very unclear that there was any great panic in the king's mind about possible rebellion. But there's no denying there was a background of trouble and unrest. In the countryside, there was no end to the irritation of lawlessness and the venality of the justice system, and internecine strife of the landed. The king himself was popular, popular to rival Warwick. He was good-looking and splendid. He lived the life that his people loved to see him live. Splendid tournaments, fine hunts, the song of chivalry. But actually, some of his policies were far from popular. The foreign diplomacy bit has a real impact on political life. Neither France nor Burgundy were popular for different reasons. The English still smarted from their defeat at the hands of the traditional enemy, France. Seriously, the croissant has yet to rescue French reputation in the eyes of the English. Burgundy, on the other hand, was important to them because the Duke of Burgundy owned the Low Countries, so important as the destination for English wool and unfinished cloth. But the Duke of Burgundy had imposed a trade embargo on English merchants. Despite his treaty and marriage to Margaret of York, the new Duke, Charles, obstinately refused to raise the embargo. Because Charles's heart lay with France. Politics had made him ally with the English, but it never sat happily with him. So, England was in a ferment, a sort of bubbling soup of faction, and no one likes a bubbling soup. In London, the merchants and apprentices, artisans, guilds and traders wavered between their hatred of the Flemings on the one hand and the French on the other. Meanwhile, Edward had raised a hated tax to go and take war to the French, but showed no sign of going. And meanwhile, Warwick was still the hero of Calais, popular wherever he went. So the long and short is that it's not surprising if Edward worried a bit. He must have worried that Warwick was up to something, that at the very least he was a subject so overmighty as to be off the Richter scale of overmightiness. All around him people moaned and groaned at taxation and trade and justice. He felt a few sparks could result in an explosion. And nor could the Lancastrians be forgotten. The Queen and Prince might be living in relative penury in a ramshackle court in France, abandoned by the King of France. Henry might be safely under lock and key in the Tower, but Lancastrian sympathies there still were. Jasper Tudor reminded them by landing with a force in Wales at Harlech in 1468, and although swiftly defeated and sent packing by the loyal William Herbert, was clearly too early to relax. And Edward was right to worry. In a way, Warwick was a victim of his own success of believing his own publicity. 
It played into the part of the warrior prince, bold, adventurous, glorious, warlike. It played into the part of the the go-to man, the kingmaker, saviour of the House of York, the people's favourite, the real power behind a papier-mâché throne. And now he found he couldn't go back to the secondary role of magnate, however grand. He found he could not be one amongst many, could not play second fiddle to the new power of the Woodvilles, and crucially, found he couldn't even play second fiddle to the lad he'd turned into a king, and who now seemed to have a mind of his own. And so Warwick began to think about how he could regain the reality of the image he had of himself, which now seemed so dim and tarnished, and he began to look to his connections and family in the north. So, into this troublesome soup, let us introduce a few characters that will have a part to play in the next few years. One of these is George. George Neville, Archbishop of York and Warwick's brother. George had chosen the church as his career in time-honoured fashion. The suspicion is that being a Neville had a good deal more to do with his elevation to his appointments as Bishop of Exeter and then Archbishop of York than either his saintliness or his learning and erudition. And as far as saintliness is concerned, that's probably fair dues. But learning, well, he clearly had some. But such learning as he had was accompanied by a remarkably large dose of grandeur and magnificence and party-throwing. So he had been through the University of Oxford, and he had done most of the presentations and arguments required of him. But as he studied, he had been fast-tracked, and meanwhile he maintained magnificent rooms in Balliol College. His graduation was marked by a feast so splendid they'd actually had to relax the rules of the university to allow it. It was a love of splendour and display that had all the hallmarks of his aristocratic background. He's a man very much like Henry Beaufort. Nonetheless, he was a man of considerable talent and competence. He might have been largely an absentee Bishop of Exeter, but he governed effectively through subordinates. As Chancellor for three years, he was efficient and competent until removed by Edward. He impressed even his Italian peers with the sophistication of his learning and rhetoric and diplomatic talents. George Neville was a talented, silver-tongued example of the aristocratic churchman, and that meant he was a leader of the church, but still in every way a player in national politics and a Neville through and through. And as events were to prove, being a Neville claimed his first loyalty. Loyalty to his brother Warwick took the front seat. God was buckling up in the back. George and Warwick's other brother, John Neville, looked as though he might make different choices. John Neville had been a rock for Edward's first years, firmly holding the north against all comers, suppressing the Lancastrian revolts and Scottish invasions, hero of the Battle of Hedgeley Moor and Hexham and Edward had rewarded him handsomely. Now he was Earl of Northumberland. He'd been given many of the old Percy estates, while Henry Percy languished in the Tower of London for his family's support for the Lancastrians. John Neville was as concerned as any magnate to grow his power and lands and influence. But loyalty to the throne seemed to be paying dividends, and whether his brothers could persuade him otherwise was very much open to a question. With him, Warwick's chances would be greatly improved. Without him, they'd be seriously weakened. So much for the three Neville brothers. But there is another George we should talk about, though not a Neville, who we introduced last week. So, ladies and gentlemen, 
give it up to the king's younger brother, George, Duke of Clarence. Clarence is 19, where we are now in 1468. He'd been welcomed into the royal household by his brother, made Duke of Clarence, and been given land in the West Country, in Staffordshire, near the Welsh borders. He was also a man with talent, smooth, elegantly attractive, sharp-witted and clever in his speech. The Italian humanist and scholar Dominic Mancini visited England, and along with describing Edward's philanderings, described Clarence thus, presumably in an excellent English accent. Possessed of such mastery of popular eloquence that nothing upon which he set his heart seemed difficult for him to achieve. And there's evidence of this talent when he could be bothered to apply it, evidence of a competent landowner and magnate managing his tenants and subordinates. But Clarence's talents and character led him into all the wrong areas. There's an element of the Humphrey Duke of Gloucester about Clarence as the king's eldest brother. He was at the moment also his heir, and he expected this to give him special privileges in the running of the realm and influence over his brother. He was dazzled by his own importance and magnificence. He ran an absolutely stonkingly large household, a kind of alternative court at his castle of Tutbury in Staffordshire. And this cost four and a half thousand quid a year to run. An extraordinary sum, a household of 400 souls, which is bigger than the royal household. He was in love with himself, willful, unself-disciplined, shallow and spoiled. His talents led him only to pursue his own self-interest, and with apparently no moral compass, politics meant for him scheming, plotting and power-broking, rather than any responsibility for leadership and loyalty. Worse for Clarence was that, though on the face of it Edward was generous to his brother and welcomed him into the royal household, there was a reluctance and a caution about Edward's attitude to Clarence that is entirely absent from Edward's attitude to his youngest brother, Richard of Gloucester. Somehow Clarence was treated at arm's length, was never quite given the responsibility that his status would seem to demand. Edward was essentially no fool. Edward had an idea of his brother's essential unreliability. Clarence was also dazzled by the living legend that was Warwick. Warwick was an image of what Clarence wanted to be, apparently the arbiter of the nation, enormously rich and charismatic. So the idea of marrying Warwick's eldest daughter, Isabel, was deeply attractive and seemed to be on the verge of giving Clarence much of what he wanted, money, power, influence, use of the comfy chair on a Wednesday. So Edward's refusal to countenance the marriage in 1467 hit Clarence like a ton of bricks. Clarence could have responded by reflecting that his brother was right to distrust Warwick, right to point out that to connect Neville to the royal household would make an overmighty subject even overmightier, and dangerously so. Clarence did not respond in this way. Clarence did not carefully reflect and weigh up the justice of his brother's decision. Clarence had been denied. Clarence did not like to be denied. Clarence was not used to being denied, and Clarence would not be denied. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
At his caput of Middleham in 1468, Warwick schemed. Messengers clattered in and out of the castle gates, carrying letters to tenants and allies across the North and Midlands, seeking their loyalty and support. He even put feelers out to the Scots. Together with Clarence and George Neville, Warwick resolved not to accept Edward's refusal of his daughter's marriage to Clarence. George Neville was deputed to secretly bribe the king's own papal agent and gain a papal dispensation for the marriage. Warwick tried desperately to win his other brother, John Neville, to his side, to understand if when he moved, John would move with him. But John remained firmly aloof and uncommunicative. Meanwhile, Warwick communicated with Louis, the King of France. Now, Louis had been furious at Warwick's failure to deliver the English alliance. But Louis was not called Spider for nothing. He was called Spider. He still saw in Warwick his best chance to destabilise England and break the chain of enemies Edward had built around him in Burgundy and Brittany. In 1467, Edward had intercepted a French royal messenger, sent by Louis to Warwick, but allowed him to proceed. Reassured by the messenger's protestations that his messages were only angry reproaches for Warwick's failure to deliver peace. But actually, he took promises of French support and brought back to Louis stories of Warwick's greatness and popularity and Warwick's fury. He reported Warwick's famous angry outburst, which kind of sums it all up. It is a matter of being either master or varlet. Louis was pretty confident that Warwick's decision would head in the master direction. So, into this explosive mix came the news that the King of Denmark had seized four English merchant ships on their way to the Baltic Hanseatic town of Danzig. The Hanseatic League of Towns in the Baltic dominated Baltic and Northern European trade. Their ships carried English goods into Northern and Central Europe, which was crucial to London merchants, gave a route into Europe that was particularly crucial now that Burgundy was still blocking traditional routes. More than that, it gave jobs to English weavers and dyers, because while the Low Countries would only import unfinished cloth, because they had their own finishing and clothes-making trade, the Hans took finished clothes. So much more valuable. And then on their return trip to England, the Hans ships carried vital commodities. Timber, pitch and tar for shipbuilding, potash for the processing of cloth, furs, bowstaves, wax and other raw materials. So at their trading centre in London, the Steel Yard, the Hanseatic merchants enjoyed enormous trading privileges as a result. Warwick saw an opportunity. An opportunity to be seen as the patriotic defender of the English. But also to put himself in command of the English fleet, and as part of a master plan to wrest control of England back into his own hands and bring Edward firmly to heel. So here is that plan then. George Neville's agents told him that papal dispensation was on its way. The bribes had done their job. Isabel Neville and Clarence would be allowed to marry, even against the king's wishes. So Warwick and Clarence would sail to Calais under cover of preparing the fleet for trade war against the Hans towns. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Warwick's tenants and allies in the north would raise rebellion. In this, Warwick was not only riding his local alliances and affinities. There was a widespread discontent and anger in the north against local taxation, corruption and injustice, 
it would take little to harness this to raise an army. What Warwick didn't know was what Brother John would do. As it happens, in the spring of 1469 there was early support for his plan. In April 1469, a series of riots erupted in Yorkshire, led by a Jack Cade-like leader who called himself Robin of Reedsdale, a popular hero like Robin Hood who would stand up for the wronged common man and visit justice on the corrupt officials that oppressed them. The king's men, in particular, were blamed by the rioters. Purveyance of goods for the royal household was unpopular. The king's men were accused of fostering corruption. Edward had lost popularity in other ways. The trade agreement with Burgundy continued to be unpopular. But while Edward watched anxiously, John Neville gave early indications of his intent. John Neville moved swiftly south and put the rebellion down. But Warwick clearly saw that here was nonetheless an opportunity for him. Here was the chance to clothe his own rebellion in respectability and popularity, to present himself as the leader of a just petition to the king to right the wrongs of the king's servants and harness popular support. So, Warwick played the role of counsellor and adviser to the king. He played the role of the reconciled loyal servant. Down to London he came and persuaded the king to act against the hands. The steelyard was invaded and closed down, the hands merchants' privileges revoked and a fine of 20,000 quid demanded. When the hands predictably refused... Warwick was given leave to raise the fleet and take trade war to the seas. In fact, this probably didn't help Edward's popularity. Although the Hans traders were also unpopular, they were, after all, rich foreigners, Edward's declaration of war threatened to hit the pockets of cloth workers all over the country. Then in May, Warwick came down for a garter ceremony with the king at Windsor and then off to Sandwich in Kent, on the southeast coast, to supervise the refitting of his flagship, the Trinity. But then, riots and rebellion exploded again in Yorkshire, and again the leader was officially called Robin of Reedsdale. But this time it was a front. This time it was a different Robin of Reedsdale. Neville's agents had been hard at work preparing Warwick's tenants and affinity to march when the call came. A man called Sir John Conyers, Warwick's cousin by marriage, had been given the job of leading this revolt. And now secretly the word went out to riot under the name of Reedsdale and of all the injustices and wrongs suffered by the common man. And now terrifying reports came south to the king's court of men pillaging all over Yorkshire. But in nature, in fact, this army, however large, was very different to the previous uprising. It was composed of experienced fighting men, loyal to the Neville name. Warwick had been super clear to Conyers. There must be none of the mayhem and pillaging that had done such damage to Queen Margaret's march south in 1461. It was critical that the rebellion retained that popular support. And there was to be no mention of Warwick's name, not until the time was right. As the stories reached London, Edward decided there was no great cause for alarm. Warwick was clearly back inside the tent, busying himself with visions of glory on the high seas, or at least the narrow ones. If the previous riots were anything to go by, slapping this last event down would be child's play, and John Neville would probably do it for him anyway. But then as the stories filtered down from the north, he decided he ought to be doing something. So he announced he would go north to deal with this, 
and in June off he set, with a small army and retinue. He sent instructions to William Herbert in Wales and his new favourite Humphrey Stafford in Devon to join him with men when they could. He was quite clearly in no great hurry or panic, and he set off at a leisurely place to take in the sights as he went. Early in June, he was at Walsingham in deepest Norfolk, which really isn't on the way to Yorkshire. Around him were his closest confidants and household, which, of course, was composed of the Woodvilles, Rivers and Scales, of his youngest brother, Richard of Gloucester, and then a, a cloud of younger Woodvilles. From Walsingham, westwards to Fotheringhay, where he hung around for a week eating bonbons, and then slowly and gently northwards, until he reached Newark on the 10th of July. But then at this point, the tone changes. Edward appears to suddenly realise that actually he might be heading Picklewoods, and that if he wasn't careful, he might be up a certain creek without any means of propulsion, he could be, ladies and gentlemen, in the poop because suddenly a stream of instructions pour out from the royal camp. Urgent demands from Coventry, for example, for archers. To Herbert and Stafford to get a move on and come quickly. He sent the unpopular Woodvilles away for their safety, Rivers and his younger son John Woodville to Wales and Scales into Norfolk, and he turned back to take refuge in the castle at Nottingham. What was it that had suddenly put the wind up the royal personage? Well, partly it could be that the reports of the numbers of rebels had suddenly got a lot scarier, 60,000, for example, in one case. And Edward suddenly looked around him and realised, oh, it might have been better to come with a proper army. But it's probably a lot more than that. Suddenly Edward might have realised that the relaxed trust he'd placed in Warwick might have been badly misplaced. Because there's another letter that left on the 9th of July from the royal household to Clarence and Warwick, demanding that they come to him with all urgency. I quote, And we trust that ye should be of any such disposition towards us as the rumour here runneth, considering the trust and affection we bear you. Because a couple of weeks earlier, Warwick had moved much closer to declaring his hand. On the 28th of June, he'd written to his supporters, announcing Clarence's forthcoming marriage to his daughter, Isabel. If news of this had reached Edward's ears, this was tantamount to rebellion. Edward received no reply to his demand for Clarence and Warwick to attend him, and he received no reply because Clarence and Warwick were away. Clarence and Warwick were in Calais, along with Isabel and George Neville, and apparently with a good turnout for the nuptials. John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, had joined them to boot, despite having been cleared of plotting by Edward a while ago. Oops. And there... On the 11th of July, in defiance of the King's express wishes, the Archbishop of York married Clarence and Isabel. The following day, Clarence and Warwick gave their answer in a roundabout way to their Lord's summons. In an open letter, Warwick and Clarence declared their support for the Northern rebels. In traditional style, they demanded the removal of the evil councillors surrounding the King, naming Rivers, Scales and Stafford. Herbert and John Woodville among them. This bunch, they wrote, had allowed the realm to, quote, fall in great poverty of misery, only intending their own promotion and enriching. They complained that princes of the royal blood had been excluded from the king's council. Hmm, wonder who that could be. 
and ominously they drew parallels between Edward and Edward II, Richard II and Henry VI. And we know how all those guys ended up. By the 16th of July, Warwick and Clarence were in Kent, and all about them were cries of Warwick! Warwick! as rebellious Kent joined in. From there they marched to London, and although there was no great sign of enthusiasm from London officialdom, they were admitted. In the north, Reedsdale received instructions from Warwick to outflank Edward by marching south and west towards Coventry, where he would gather all his men, and thereby also head off Herbert and Stafford, who were now marching to rescue the beleaguered king at Nottingham. Edward, meanwhile, sat in Nottingham like uh, a lemon. Why, you have to ask? Did he still hope against hope everything would be okay? Or maybe he feared being picked up if he actually went to go and meet Herbert and Stafford. Who knows, but sit like a lemon is precisely what he did. Warwick set out from London for Coventry with his army on the 18th of July. Reedsdale, meanwhile, swung around Nottingham and headed for Coventry. Stafford and Herbert put on the afterburners and sped northwards and reached a place called Edgecote Moor near Banbury, not far from Coventry, on the night of the 24th of July. As they set up camp for the night, a bit of a spat blew up between Herbert and Stafford about where they should put both of their contingents, and in a huff, Stafford retreated ten miles away to set up camp with all the archers. This was to prove unfortunate. Early the following morning, while Herbert and his men were brushing their teeth and changing their pyjamas, Reedsdale army suddenly appeared in their mist and attacked. Desperately, Herbert pulled his men back as far as he could before the rebel army was fully on them and sent for Stafford to come quickly. And there he stood and put up a fierce defence, at disadvantage of numbers and, crucially, without archers. By one o'clock, Stafford and his archers began to join, and maybe Herbert hoped the situation in Edward's throne could be saved. But at this crucial moment, an advanced contingent of Warwick's army appeared in their rear. The royal army broke, fled, and was subject to vicious slaughter. The immediate aftermath of Edgecote Moor was equally brutal. William Herbert and his brother Richard Herbert were captured and taken as prisoners to Northampton. On the 27th of July, Warwick rode into town and carried out a completely illegal trial, pronounced a death sentence, and both were beheaded. By the time the news was out, Edward had moved, left Nottingham to try to meet up with Herbert and Stafford, and although I called him a lemon, I probably owe him an apology. There's not a vast amount he could have done anyway, since the same thing would probably have happened to him as happened now. He was caught. He was caught by George Neville, who had been sent to find him. Actually, before George caught him, the news of the dreadful defeat had reached Edward and his men, and his men immediately deserted him. And so, at the rather picturesque town of Olney, the Archbishop met the King and took him into his safe keeping, as it were, or at least took him into his keeping. And so there we are, a complete turnaround. Next time we'll hear about the regime that Warwick sets up and how it goes. As far as this particular disaster is concerned, you do sadly have to put a degree of blame on Edward. He was curiously lackadaisical, as though he didn't want anything nasty to happen and therefore assumed it wouldn't happen. Such a contrast with the energetic and decisive Edward who had so comprehensively won the campaigns of 1461. 
Ho-hum, there is, as they say, naught so strange as folk. Mainly regular donators to thank today, so my thanks to Cathy, Richard and William. And my thanks also to Benjamin. That's it for now. Next week, Warwick's Wicked Way. Thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck and have a great week. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify. And break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.